We are going to continue in this series this morning on the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in Ephesians 2. And, um, you know, Paul comes, we've been studying this for a few weeks now. If you've been here, you know, and um, there's a lot of stuff packed in the beginning, but, but today Paul kind of turns the corner a little bit in these first three chapters. Paul says some hard things in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm just going to kind of talk through them this morning. But I, I, I want us to kind of understand something as we set into this is that, um, you know, we think we know our condition. Uh, we think we know we need God. We say that. You need God. I need God. We talk about that when we see one another's lives, the places that we are unhealthy or unhealed. And yet today Paul speaks very plainly about our reality. We kind of think about things that we face in life that in the moment are tragedies. I mean, the struggles that we have that in the moment seem insurmountable. But Paul, in the second chapter of Ephesians, really pushes us to a new level of understanding about the real, the real need that we have for God. So if you could, if you would, just we're going to kind of talk through this this morning. The, the, if you use one of our Bibles, it's going to be on page 811, again, I think. Um, and we're just going to be covering verses 1 through 10, but we're going to kind of talk through them as we go. So hear the, word, the beginning of this word with me. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I think this is probably one of the most profound passages of Scripture that speak to our human condition. I mean, I want to remind you that when Paul started writing the book to Ephesians, he said some crazy things, like he said, to the saints, those who are faithful, right? When he talked about himself, he said, I'm one who's sent by God to you to bring the word. And when he talked about his belief, he said, I and my friends were the very first to put 100% confidence, to completely trust Jesus with everything. And he imputed that upon them when he said, and you received this also when you believed in Jesus. You'll remember, he said, you received not just salvation, but the promised Holy Spirit of God to lead you and guide you in your life. You also were included when you believed. So this all sounds really great, opening of Ephesians. And then Paul says in chapter 2, but as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. As I was studying this passage this week, I was reminded of the, the reality of, of, of being alive but dead, or dead but alive. And, and the picture came to me of... Uh, the, the movie that we, was made, 
you know, a while back now, I think it was made in 96, called Dead Man Walking. I'm not so hung up on the movie and all that, but I, I think that there was an interesting reality there. The movie's title is taken from this habit, this practice that developed in the prison system. Now, what's interesting about this habit or practice is no one knows how it started. There was no written code somewhere that said, this is how you deal with someone who was bound for death. But the habit, nonetheless, began that as they would take a prisoner who was on death row and begin the walk to his execution chamber, whether that be by hanging or um, electric chair or lethal injection or perhaps firing squad, the, the guards would walk behind the man and say, dead man walking here. Dead man walking here as he walked by all the other prisoners. There's a few theories about why they did it this way. You know, one was that to let the prisoners know that this guy has nothing to lose anymore. I mean, if you get too close to your bars when he's going by, he might take your life because his is going to be gone in a second. So stand clear. There's a dead man walking. Another was that there was um, kind of this final insult to the condemned that as he had to walk by his friends they would hear it echoed behind him this is a dead man walking dead man walking as he headed to his death whatever the reason this had a chilling effect and it became the title of a book that was written by a nun who went to death row and took the walk and saw those dead men walking. See, no matter what anyone thought about that man, he was breathing, he was moving, he was alive. The environment he was in said, this man is dead. Dead man walking. Paul says the same thing when he talks about our state before Jesus Christ. He says, as for you, church in Ephesus, as for you, saints, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I think it's interesting that he, he says, um, we're dead in our transgressions and sins, you see, because this, I, I'm just convinced, church, and I don't know, you know, if you're with me or not, but I think that in our minds, we don't understand our reality before God. I think in our minds, we say, oh, I was a cute kid. I, I didn't do that much stuff wrong. I had something, you know, some redeeming quality about me. But in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. It meant you had nothing to offer. It meant that you stood rightly condemned. The word trans 
transgression, it's kind of funny because we say, uh, sometimes we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses. You know, if you've ever seen the signs hung on someone, no trespassing, right? It's this idea that we have somehow violated God's territory, his presence, his sovereign place. But here's the kicker, that, that this word here that says, you were dead in your transgressions, it's this idea of walking away from God. There are holy moments in our life, I believe. The moment we have first breath is holy. I'll say to any of you who are, who are young folks and haven't had your children yet, fight tooth and nail to be in the room when your child takes their first breath because it's holy. It's beautiful. And there's another holy moment that comes and it comes when we leave this earth. And it's our last breath, and it's holy. It's a gift of God. But here, Paul, when he says that you were dead in your transgressions, he's saying to you, church, and I hope you know this is true because we have to let this settle in our soul, that from the moment we sucked wind on this planet, we began our steady journey away from God. That those cute babies that we love to look at, and I love babies, have begun this trajectory to leave the God that they knew, that they know who made them. And you say, this isn't possible, Bill. They're babies. They're not leaving God. But I have a question for you. Where are you in your faith? Because I got to tell you, when I woke up and realized my condition spiritually, I realized I was far from God, this cute baby, walking away from the God who made me. The word says that we were dead in our transgressions, church. We were leaving the God who made us. We were hopelessly aiming the wrong direction. Paul says in the second chapter of the first verse, as for you, you were dead in transgressions and you were dead in sin. And, you know, this word sin gets used a lot in church, but it means you just, you're not perfect. You, you aim for the target and you miss it. You aim for the target and you miss it. That's what it means, missing the mark repeatedly. And Paul says, listen, church, don't get this wrong. You were dead in both. You were heading the wrong way. You couldn't hit the target if you tried. You were hopelessly and helplessly lost. I don't know how that feels to you. That feels terrible to me. I want to I know the promises of God. I want to know the, the good story. I want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's this reality that we have to understand that us, and you know, we have the audacity to say even us, like we've somehow moved ourselves beyond this realm of condemnation of God of our own power. You understand what I'm saying? We do this comparatively. Well, Father, I'm not like that guy. I'm better than him. I'm not like that lady, that mom, that kid. But God doesn't work in a comparative marketplace. 
He works in a holy place. And Paul says, church, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He even goes on to say in verse 2, in which you used to live, and when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, you know what I mean? We sing the song, this is the air I breathe. But some of us are breathing this toxic air, this air that leads us away from God. You see, Paul made no apologies for the fact that your spiritual life is a fight. And here he says, you were led astray by the prince of the air. Check it out. He says, you also were following a spirit at work in you who, were, who was disobedient, a disobedient child. You also were like that. Check it out in verse 3 with me because I want you to see this because you go, you know what Paul's talking about? He's talking about the other people. He's not talking about me. He's not talking about the church in Ephesus. I want you to understand we got to get this right in our hearts and in our minds because I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But we got to understand this deeply in our spirit. Paul in verse 3 says this, all of us also lived among them at one time. Listen, Paul says, all of us also gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. All of us also followed the desires and thoughts of this world. The sinful nature. All of us, Paul says, did these things. That's crazy to me. That's crazy. And, it, and if that is enough, so, so Paul says, uh, we were also like them. We lived among them. We did the same things. Check this. This is the next thing he says. Like the rest, we were by our very nature objects of wrath. See, that doesn't sit right with me. That, that, means, that means, church, and I want you to hear this with me, that means that that day when you woke up feeling good about yourself, feeling empowered, feeling like you were going to get things together, that day you were offensive to God. That day when you were not yet with Christ, your very being offended him. And his wrath was rightfully being poured out. Being poured out on us. By our very nature, you know, that's kind of a nice euphemistic way of saying we were children of wrath. All of us. When Paul opens the letter to Ephesians, he starts off by saying, I am coming to you, saints. And then he says, we believe. And he says, you also believed and were given the Spirit of God. But then he backs this back around. And he says, they, you were like them. And then he says, we also were like them. And then Paul says, all of us are by our very nature objects of wrath, children under the wrath of God. 
How does that feel this morning? That kind of takes the winds out of the sails of our, I'm good enough, you're good enough, we're all going to be okay, doesn't it? That kind of takes the, the winds out of the sails of, I'm going to do the best I can all the while I can and hope in the end, somehow, by some magic, some, some way, some method. I'll tell you why I'm worried, church. Because I think that far too many of us, you and I, count on our own righteousness to save us. We count on there's just something good enough yet. There's some, some good in everyone. God will see it. Paul says we are children of wrath, rightly judged, dead in our leaving God, dead in our sin. Ah, that feels terrible. And so here's the thing, man, because until you get that, until you understand that your very you know, disobedience, your very unwillingness to acknowledge God, your very unwillingness to give him praise in the morning, he says, I'm due the first praise. Your very breathing in his creation offends him. And then, church, and this is where... Uh, the biggest words in the Bible come next. Because if we understand that there's no us and them, but there's just us who are rightfully standing condemned, rightfully judged, lost, hopeless, no power to change our direction, no way that we can do the right thing apart from God. Verse 4. Look at with me. It says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is great, rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Huh. Yeah. Hallelujah. The two biggest words in the Bible. <laughs> the two most important words. But God. Objects of wrath. But God. Look, that's exactly what it says. It says in verse 4, but because of his great mercy for us, God moved on our behalf. God moved. You wonder how someone can give the rest of their life to Christ. You wonder on the outside looking in how someone could dare throw away everything that they own and follow him. It's found in these words. A right understanding of our condition. Hopeless and helpless and dead. But God. This morning, some of you are here with me, church dealing with some things that are hard. And I want to remind you of these words in spite of your circumstance. Because I can't think of anything more profoundly depressing or more profoundly oppressive than this reality that we were standing condemned under God's wrath. And these two words come to us from Scripture, but God... 
You're, you're having a, a real hard time at work. You know, the video we watched earlier had these things that happen to us every day that we get frustrated with, but we can answer those frustrations with, but God. Maybe in our, our marriage relationships, we're struggling, and we, we don't even know which way to turn yet. I mean, I want you to see that there's this reality that the, the, the brokenness, the disconnectedness, the necros, the death, and the hope in Christ are tied together in the most profound way. But in our own life, when we find ourselves, I'm convinced, church, I said this one time, you know, faith is only helpful when it's unreasonable. Faith is only necessary when we can't see where to go anymore. And this is the condition that Paul writes to, and he says, but God moved on our behalf. But God is working in your marriage relationship. But God is saving your children and your homes. But God is working on behalf of those who are fighting for our freedom. But God comes in in the most hopeless and helpless and desperate situations and delivers his people. So I wonder this morning, wherever you are, whatever you're sitting in, whatever you're living in, I wonder what is it that you're facing? You think, I can't deal with this. And whatever it is I want to ask, is it possible? Is it possible that it's the very thing that God is saying, but me? Prayer times like that transform your lives. God, where do I go? But me, but him, but God is working. There's a final uh, story, and I want to get to the application of what this word means today from us, how Paul kind of fleshes this out amongst the church in Ephesus and ourselves. But there's a great story in the Old Testament about brothers who couldn't get along, and the one was favorite, and his name was Joseph, and they decided to kill him. And I can't tell you the whole story, but the, story go, the end of the story goes like this. After all the stuff that Joseph goes through at the hands of his brother, after all of the, the lifelong suffering that he was inflicted upon him by those who loved him the most, at the end, his words to them are these. He says, enemies, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. These words will change your life. So, look at verse 5 with me, if you will. Verse 4 again. But because of his great love for us, right, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, Paul says. I mean, the very first thing that God does in our life is he, bring, he brings us to life while we are yet transgressors, leaving him. He brings us to life. That's what the word says, doesn't it, in verse 5? 
He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The God that we follow is a God who speaks life into us, and that life and presence is in his being. It's in his love, and it's in his, you know, his presence in our life. We were made alive in Christ. Paul goes on to say that we were raised in Christ. In verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ. Listen, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That in this moment of delivery, we're no longer stuck where we've always been, hopelessly lost, helplessly lost, kind of over here in the trash can of the world, in this place that is bound for destruction, where God will pour his wrath out and burn everything up. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? And this is where we were. And it's, the word says, but God removed us with Christ from there. God raised us to life from there. God saved us from his eternal condemnation from there. Paul says we are raised up in Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms I'll remind you, we talked earlier about a dead man walking, and that's the story. That's the story of a believer in Jesus. In Christ, we take that walk and he empowers us. But I want you to see that as we're going, the same proclamation that this is a dead man. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And I'm moving. And the kicker is that you can now see beyond the grave. You can see beyond the system that is condemned. You can see beyond the hopelessness in which we live. We were once partakers in it with them, but now, brothers and sisters, we are bound for glory alive in Christ. And, and then this is funny because you go, well, why would God raise us up? Like, why are we so special? What is so unique about us? And I got a word for you this morning. Nothing. Nothing. There's no difference between us and anyone else except that God had mercy on us. Wow. If you read on in verse 7, this is what the word says to us this morning. He raised us up in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in the kindness of Jesus Christ. I, you know, I think it's funny because earlier it said, but God who is, in verse 4, rich in mercy. I, you know, have, do you ever see that when you were a kid, did you ever watch those cartoons with the ducks that were swimming in the gold? Do, do you ever imagine like the dragon who guards the treasure and there's piles and piles? Do you ever imagine the king's mansion 
where he opens a door and he shows you his riches. But his riches are not piles and piles of gold, but piles and piles of mercy. That's crazy to me. In verse 7, it says that the reason that God raised us up and seats us with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms is so that at that time, he can show us the incomparable richness of his mercy. Now, I think this has got a twofold application for us, church. The first is this. There, God has this mercy in store. I mean, he has piles and piles of grace to pour out on us. And this is the big tragedy when we weren't willing to receive it, to accept it, to be where we are, to be honest with God, and let him open his heavenly treasures and really pour his mercy and grace. I said those who are broken and those who are lost and those who are unhealed, and God is sitting there with treasures of healing and of wholeness and of a plan and of his mercy, and we're just not willing to have it. Double application, because the first is that we can trust that he has more than enough mercy for us. More than enough. But God, in his richness of his mercy. But here's the flip side. It says that whenever we're ascended with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms, it says that at that time, God is going to show us all the mercy he has in, in Christ. And we're going to look and we're going to go, wow. And I can't help but think, the human part of me can't help but think that in that moment, I think we're going to be caught up in the glory of God. I want to hear you to hear me. But I can't help but think that you would go, wow, that's a shame that it was wasted. I mean, do you know that God has enough mercy for that person that you think is hopeless and helpless and lost? Do you know that he has more than enough to pour out? That we don't have to be like, whoo, you know, we escaped the flames of hell by that much. True story. But we closed the door behind us because, man, there's no more room. He says, in that day, you will see the end comparable richness of God that was shown to you, shown to us in the kindness of Christ Jesus. That's a tragedy. That any of God's mercy and grace would be wasted because we're selfish with it. We're stingy. We want to say to that sinner beyond hope, there was enough for me, but man, there ain't enough for you. You have transgressed too far. Verse 8, read it with me. This one we all know. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Right? It was given to us. It was imputed on us. We didn't deserve it, and we received it by his mercy and grace. And, and that's, 
And that's it. And so this verse keeps us from thinking we're different. I, I got a story to tell you real quick. I, I, I think about the life of Jesus Christ on earth. And, and what Paul writes is consistent with his life. And I'll tell you why. Because the most offensive people in Jesus' eyes when he walked the earth were those who would stand around in holy clothes and say, thank God I'm better than that guy. Boy, that really ticked Jesus off. Do you know that? Or, or the people who would say, if you would only do a little more, if you'd only give a little more, then you could know God more fully. You see, that ticked Jesus off. Because he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. He said, the kingdom is, is here. He said, there is nothing that's being withheld from you. He has given everything to you. Piles and piles of mercy. And part of this was our own salvation. You and I were saved by grace. Hopelessly lost, but saved by grace. Praise God. We were saved by grace. I mean, if there was some treadmill we had to keep running on, I would have been off a long time ago. Last point this morning. He saved us by grace, and this is the last one, church. We're going we're gonna to stop with this. But it says, it, verse 10, read with me. For we, that's you and I, are God's workmanship, his craftiness, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a beautiful word because so far we've heard of our hopeless state with God. And so far we've heard of the but God mercy where he speaks into brokenness and he heals and he makes us whole. And now in this place, Paul says, but Check it out. But God also created you in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for you to do, to go out and let people know the unsearchable richness of Christ, to, to share the treasure with others. It says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want to I lay this out, and then we're going we're gonna to be done today. We can look at this following after Jesus like it's not enough. And i got to confess, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I wake up every morning thinking, oh, God, I failed. Yesterday, I'm going to, you know, I'm in the worst thinking. i got to do more, got to do more. And this word today from the book of Ephesians, Paul says, not only did God save us from a hopeless estate, not only did he move us into salvation, but he has recreated us reformed us, changed our hearts. We saw it earlier with Jim and his kids. He has crafted us to do what we are called to do. And here's the kicker. The work, he already had it set aside for you and me. That's kind of crazy. That means that the comparison stuff doesn't work anymore. I don't have to say, well, look how much they're doing. They're doing more than I'm doing. I'm doing more than they're doing. We're all on some kind of a hierarchical pecking ladder with Jesus, trying to earn his love and respect. We're like the unwanted children. Or there's too many people in the boat, and we're just trying to say, pay attention to me. We're like John and uh, the Brothers of Thunder, who was it, James and John, when they're like, hey, seat us at your right hand and your left, right? Because we're all loved by God. And Paul says here that in our salvation, God has set apart work for us to do. And all we got to do is show up and do it. There's job security. There's nobody. Nobody's going to take your work. Just sitting there waiting for us to do. 
So we said a lot today. And I don't know where you are. <laughs> um, and I don't want to make this an achievement thing. Because the God that I've come to know, church, is not a God that can be programmed into your life. He's not a God that can be argued in by, like, logic and clear thinking. He's not a God who is controlled or controllable in our life. The God that I've come to know is the God that comes in and moves while we are yet sinners. And so today, I just, my final question for all of us to consider, wherever we are, is this, are you ready to start? Wherever you are, this applies to you. If today you don't know Christ and you're like, I don't know what this means, talk to God about that. Because there's a God who is speaking right now. Some of you come in here and you'll say, man, I I don't like coming because I always feel like you're talking to me. That's not me. I mean, can I just lay that down? That's not me. That's God moving in your life. And you can resist it for a long time. Been there, done that. But eventually, God, in his mercy, may have his way. And then maybe you're past and you're like, I believe in Jesus, but now I'm kind of stuck. I don't know what's going on. This isn't the promises I thought I was getting. Things have gotten harder. I want to remind you of the but God promises. But God is at work, church. Don't doubt it. And then some of us are like there, and we're happy, and we're content, and everything's great, but we're not doing anything. And there's piles and piles of his grace. Piles. And piles. And we're so caught up in us, and we're so caught up in me, and we're so caught up in what's going to happen, that we never think to go to a beggar on the street and say, Here's a coin of his grace. Here's a bag full. I'll send a truck to your house. A truck of God's grace. This is the work that God prepared in advance for us to do. So today, I hope you've been listening to what God is saying. I hope my own soul has as well. Please join me in prayer. Father, today in your house, in the tabernacle of your glory, in your beauty, in your presence, in the richness of who you are, I pray that we could just be thankful to have been spoken to. I pray that in every way in our lives that we would not turn away the conviction of your word, that we would not ignore you for another week, month or year. But we would submit. We would trust you with whatever you have for us. And Father God, I thank you for the incomprehensible grace of Jesus Christ, who while we were yet sinners, shed blood for us. May you move in our lives and may not that someone talked us into it, but because once you have moved, no one can talk us out of it. That's the kind of faith we want, Father. A faith that is unreasonable at times. 
And we give you praise and glory for the work you're doing. We thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who dwells in us perfectly. If only we would listen. And we pray that we resign our hearts to him. That we would know you more fully. Glorify you more completely. And trust the work you've laid out for us to do. We pray these prayers in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.